Hall of Faith. Now, we talk about the Hall of Fame all the time, right? Baseball has a Hall of Fame. Soccer has a Hall of Fame. Football has a Hall of Fame. And when you end your tremendous career in any of those sports or any other number of activities, you might be installed in your Hall of Fame. And so it's true here in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a long list of people who we find all throughout the Bible who are being noted here for extraordinary demonstrations of faith. Here's what we're not going to do. And as I studied to prepare for this week, I saw this an awful lot in Bible commentaries and other Bible literatures. What people have often done in looking through the couple of dozen names who are listed here in Hebrews chapter 11, what they have said is, well, let's just go ahead and do a brief biography of every person who's listed here. And we could certainly do that and spend, well, an inordinate amount of time serving as biographers this morning. That's not what we're going to do. Let me encourage you, spend some time, some time looking up these references. If you've never read the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and uh, the judges and the prophets and the kings, it's worth doing so. Or get on that Dwell Bible app and have it read to you by um, Andrew or Felix or whoever your favorite reader might be. But that's not our goal this morning. In order to understand Hebrews chapter 11, as a single literary unit. Instead of exploring each one of these individuals separately, we're going to explore them together. What do they have in common? What defining characteristics of their faith binds them across history and experience? Now, they have an awful lot in common here just as people, and they have an awful lot of dissimilarities as well. Some of them were very rich and some were poor. Some of them lived thousands of years apart from each other. Some of them knew each other, were related to each other. Some of them were extraordinarily righteous, and some of them were absolute scoundrels, at least the way we find them in the text. Some of them were very, very holy and very obedient to the laws of God, and others were nonchalant about holiness and did whatever they wanted to do. But the thing that binds them all together is that they have at some moment in their life, some moment or season, a demonstration of an extraordinary moment of faith, an experience of faith. Now, it, it's important that we pause here just for a moment, and we won't read all 45 verses consecutively to start this morning, so I'm relying on you to uh, take up the challenge of reading through this start to finish at some point this week. But it's important that we understand that it's not simply glorifying in their faith, but rather the object of their faith. It's uh, October 1st, 1932. It's game three of the World Series between the Yankees and the Chicago Cubs. They're at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And then the fifth inning, top of the fifth inning, Babe Ruth, the legendary baseball player, one of the greatest players who ever played, stepped up to the plate, and he did something that made him absolutely famous. Do you know what it is? He took his bat, and he pointed to the outfield. And there was the sign, he is calling his shot. Uh, whatever it is that comes across this plate, a fastball, a curveball, a knuckleball, whatever it might be, I'm going to use this here wooden bat and live the tar out of it as it soars out into the stands here at Wrigley Field. I'm going to hit a home run. Surely this is going to get closers or, uh, to winning this game and winning the World Series, right? Maybe the coolest moment 
of a very, very cool career, right? One of the greatest players of all time. Now, the Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, New York. And of all the halls of fame, it's probably the most controversial, but also the most famous and the most prestigious, kind of the most stuffy of all of them, right? Now, I want you to imagine that you're a big fan of Babe Ruth, and you go to Cooperstown. You make the journey up there to Cooperstown, New York, and you want to walk into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and you get there, and you know some of the other players, but you're really there to see Babe Ruth, and you walk in, and uh, you, you know that there is a whole gallery there that is about this exact moment, October 1st, 1930. To Game three of the World Series. The, the babe calls his shot. It's an incredible moment. And you walk in, and there's not a single picture of Babe Ruth anywhere. And, and, and you don't see any plaque about Babe Ruth. You don't see any of his stats. You don't see a statue. You see none of that. In fact, what you see is that they have plaques and statues and placards for about 35,000 people. And you don't know who any of them are. And you say, uh, Paul, one of the patrons over there, could you please explain to me why in the world, in this great moment of what Babe Ruth has done, I can't find anything signifying the great work of Babe Ruth, but there's all these random strangers, thousands of them, tens of thousands of them, who are packed in here, all their names, all their likenesses, all their stories, all their testimonies. What in the world do we have going on here? And the curator comes by and goes, well, what you understand is these are the people who were in the stands that day. And they bore witness to what it is that Babe Ruth did. And to a person, we went out and interviewed every single one of them, and we asked them, hey, when Babe Ruth pointed his finger to the outfield and called his shot before he hit that incredible, historical, remarkable home run, we asked him, did you believe he could do it? And all the ones who said yes, well, we put him here in the Hall of Fame, right? Now, we make this mistake sometimes when we talk about faith. We talk about these remarkable people and the challenges and the calamities and the heroic victories that they lived through, many of them thousands of years ago. And we make the mistake, I think, of dehumanizing them and making them some sort of legendary figure that's unable to be replicated in the modern world. Trust me, they're very, very human people facing the same things that we're facing today. But we also make the mistake, too, I think, of glorifying them for believing, for having the faith in what God would do. Are they extraordinary people? Of course they are. And we're going to see that very, very clearly in Hebrews chapter 11. But I think the point that's emerging here in Hebrews 11 and in the first few verses of 12 especially is it's not just that they're extraordinary people, but they're an extraordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. He is the author of their faith. He is the one who gives it to them. So their faith is not only in him, their faith is from him. And he's the one who does these remarkable, world-changing, history-defining sorts of things in Hebrews chapter 11. I want to make three observations about the faith that they have. Three observations. Because this is really what we found in the book of Hebrews so far, right? Jesus is better. This is the theme that we see, especially in the first 10 chapters. Jesus is better than everything that has come before. He's a better priest who offers a better sacrifice, who builds a better temple, and he orders a better covenant. 
and the only requirement to enter into that covenant is faith. And that's an enduring confidence that God will keep his promises. If I sound like a broken record, that's by design. Faith is this. It's an enduring confidence that God will keep his promises. That Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he's capable and willing to do all that he claimed to do. And this kind of faith perseveres through all kinds of calamity and persecution and pressure and pain. But the question that I think comes up is, all right, I, I understand that we've been called to this kind of faith, that this is our ticket into the great covenant that Jesus Christ has offered by his blood, that we will march forward between the curtain of his flesh, which is rent, that we may be near to a holy God, and we approach by faith, a faith that endures persecution, a faith unwavering, a faith that will never turn back, But is that kind of faith even possible? I mean, really? I mean, are there actual people, real people? Not legends from history, but people of flesh and blood who fear what I fear, who feel what I feel, whose virtues and values are the same as mine, but have actual flesh and blood? Are there real stories of real people like that? And that's the question that Hebrews 11 answers. Christian history is the story of God equipping his people with an enduring faith. Christian history is the story of God equipping his people with an enduring faith. And that's what our author is doing for us today. And he's going to tell you three things about their faith. Here's the first one. These people were hopeful, assured by God of a better world to come. They were hopeful. The first defining characteristic of their faith we see here in the first couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or evidence of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Uh, now here we have a partial definition of faith. I think if you went back through and you asked an awful lot of believers throughout the ages, hey, give me a definition of faith, they maybe wouldn't tell you that it's an extraordinary, overwhelming, enduring confidence that God will keep his promises. They would say, well, I've read Hebrews uh, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, and I know everything I need to know about faith. It's right here. It's the uh, evidence uh, of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. This is what we have there. That's faith. What's a partial definition of faith? If I asked you to describe to me what is a car, you might say, well, it has doors and a steering wheel and wheels and an engine. And that is an aspect that is true. All of those things are true of most cars, right? They have wheels and a steering wheel and an engine, and the cars are also a lot more than that. They have uh, brakes and transmissions and oil in them and all sorts of things. There are a lot of components that go in. What we have here in the early verses of Hebrews chapter 11 is a partial definition that actually gives us something of an outline for everything that follows. And the very first thing that we're told about these these saints of old from verse 2, right? the people of old who received their commendation, they had an assurance of things hoped for. 
They had a hopeful faith. Let's take a look at just some of the verses that uh, emerge out of Hebrews chapter 11 here. Uh, Go ahead and look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was ready to receive as an inheritance. You remember this, the land that he was called out of to go to the land that God had promised. And he went out not knowing where he was going, and by faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of him with the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's reaching out in hope for something that he cannot see, something that was made by hands unseen, something of the invisible God, something that he may not even realize in his own lifetime, but that would be seen by his descendants through the ages. I think it's worth noting here that for all the great works of literature and antiquity, hardly any of them contain a line nearly as beautiful as the one that we've just read. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Or or verse 13, after talking about some of the early patriarchs, he says, Now these all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, literally here a fatherland, the land of the father. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We find again in talking about Moses in verse 26 that he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of all the treasures of Egypt for he was looking for the reward. We even find here in verse 38 that these saints who endured so many tragic things that the world was not worthy of them. These are a hopeful people, a forward-looking people who understand that their role here is not all they are and not all that God has promised has been immediately realized. They are not consumed with their earthly citizenship but understand that primarily who they are as it relates to God makes them exiles here on the earth. They have a stringently exilic faith. This place is temporary. It is not my forever home. There is a better city in a better land, in a better country that is being construed by God my Father. And that place, that place is my home. Now, I've heard it said an awful lot of times. And maybe you've heard this before too, this old saying. Well, it's possible to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. Have you heard this before? It's possible to be so heavenly minded, so enamored with the world to come that we're of no use to this world whatsoever. And 
what they're trying to get at here is that we have work to do here on the earth and if we're only and always thinking about what is to come it's going to make us useless here to fulfill the great commission i suppose that's possibly true uh, I remember when we first moved to Dallas, uh, I was 22 years old, and my parents helped drive me down from Ohio all the way to Dallas, Texas. Uh, the day we moved in, it was about 155 degrees uh, centigrade, right? Uh, and a big boy is now sweating here, unloading everything. And so uh, we get in, and uh, they pump you through all kinds of orientation there at the seminary that I attended. And one of the professors pulls me aside on the first day, and he said, look, uh, let me give you some clues for how to live here in this big city called Dallas. Number one, this is one of the most wealthy cities that you'll ever live in. Don't try to act like you belong here and spend more money than you have to spend. Do you understand that? Uh, okay, great. Number two, Dallas Cowboys. You're going to have to make a decision really early. Are you going to root for them or are you going to root against them? And I made that decision pretty early on. Tony Romo and Jerry Jones made that easy. I rooted against the Dallas Cowboys. That's right. Uh, we got Corey back there. He's a Buffalo Bills fan. He wants me to get done. I promise no later than 7 or 8 o'clock tonight we'll get out of here. <laughs> It would be easy to move to a new city and have an attitude like this one. And I've seen this before, right? Oh, I hate it here. Back where I came from, the food is better and the people are nicer and all the sports teams are more enthusiastic. The government officials are more competent. The men are stronger. The women are prettier. The children are all above average, right? And here, everything is worse. It smells worse, and it looks worse, and there's nothing to do, and I just don't like it here. Now, if you were the type of Christian who understood your time in this world from that perspective, I hate it here. I just want to go home. Well, then you neglect the attitude with which you should bear as a representative of the kingdom of heaven. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're an ambassador, you're an agent of reconciliation. You have been sent by God our Father to do the work of Christ by the power of His Spirit here on the earth. This is not your forever home, but it is the place to which you have been called. Root for the home team. Share with them the love of Christ. Let them know this is not permanent for you, but every day that I am here, I will love these people as God loves them, and I will serve them as I have been served by Christ, and I will tell them of the hope that comes exclusively through him. It is an extraordinary thing to be called into the service in a foreign land. Wrestle with that. Wrestle with that. Over the last couple of months especially, we have had to fight so hard to think about what it means to be a citizen of the United States. I think for an awful lot of Christians, we have neglected what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that this world is an exiled world to those who are people of faith. We are here for a mission. Let's not be caught up in every issue of the day. We are looking for another place, a hopeful place. I love in John chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob and he asks her for some water. And she says, why in the world are you asking me? Don't you know that Jews don't talk to Samaritans? And he says, now look, just give me some water. And if you had asked me for water, I would have given you some. And she goes, well, you don't have anything to give me water from. 
no bucket to drop into the well, no cup from which to draw it and drink it. And he goes, I'm not talking about this water. I'm talking about the water of life of which I gave you to drink. If you had drank it, you would know life eternal. And it's in that fascinating moment that Jesus draws her attention into eternity. He has a habit of doing that by taking our focus away exclusively from what's happening right now in this moment and pushing it toward a future of indescribable glory in which he has infested into the hearts of all those who follow him hope, real hope. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. So go ahead and take a look there. Just a couple of pages over to the right. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're in Hebrews 11. And in the New Testament, it's Hebrews, James, and then 1 Peter. So just a few pages over to the right. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Okay. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not here yet, it's waiting to be revealed. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You can endure. God is building that kind of faith in you. And that faith is grounded in a promise that he is coming again to take you to a better land. They had a very hopeful faith. Secondly, they had an obedient faith. An obedient faith and a strong conviction that God is working in powerful but unseen ways. That obedience is grounded in a confidence that God is working, a conviction that God is working in powerful but unseen ways. God's work is not always in my sight, God's work is not always in my time. God's work is not always in my sight. God's work is not always in my time. I want you to see that here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God accepting him by accepting his gifts, or commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith he died. He still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was commended as having pleased God. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. Verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed, and he went out to a place he didn't know. Verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. She considered that him who was faithful, who had made the promise by faith, verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up to Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings, things that he would not see. 
By faith, Jacob blessed each of the sons of Joseph, blessings that he would not see. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, an event hundreds of years in the future from where he was. By faith, Moses was hidden. By faith, Moses led the people out, choosing rather, verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea, not knowing what the land looked like to which they were going. Verse 32, what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, all the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women even received their dead back by resurrection. So many times God made a promise to the people in the pre-patriarch days to Abraham, excuse me, to Adam and his son Abel. He made promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He made promises in the post-patriarchal phase, right? to Moses, to David, to Solomon, to the prophets. And what did all of these people have in common? It's not that they were all perfectly righteous. It's not that they had it all together. It's that they believed that even though they could not see what God was doing, God was working. And they believed that even though they may not live to say the day when the promise would be fulfilled, that it would be fulfilled. God is working, sometimes out of my sight, sometimes out of my time. Uh, I got sucked into a TV show maybe a year ago. And uh, it was on PBS, and I know for half of you, you just, oh, I'm never going to watch that. Uh, But it was a, a series of examinations of cathedrals in England in a history of cathedrals in England, how they were constructed in the history of those through the English Civil War and throughout all of the ages. Absolutely fascinating if you're nerdy enough to really like something like that. Uh, I remember they stopped by a cathedral that was, uh, they started to build it in the late 1800s, uh, St. Saint, Saint John the Divine. That's the name of that cathedral. Uh, and I did the math this morning. They've been building that cathedral for 129 years. And they asked the chief architect who was working on the project today, how far are you from being done? And he said, look, we should have it done in no longer than another 100 or 200 years. And you find this with an awful lot of cathedrals, especially, uh, I can't remember the name of the one in Spain. They've been working on it for 150 years. There were several in antiquity that were hundreds of years to be seen. You see, there were architects and there were builders and there were laborers and artisans who started a project that they believed would come to fruition that had the backing of kings, that had the will of the people, and they knew in their lifetime they would never see it done. Thing that came before them and that would exist long after them, but they entrusted the vision to the grand designer who is the architect over the entirety of the plan. This is exactly how our faith works. We are part of a community of faith, a history and a lineage of faith. 
those who came before us and those who will come after us bear witness to the work of God in history. The architect of saving the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. We may not see it all in our day. It may be years after we've come and we may not know exactly what's happening behind the scenes. It may be Naladad. But God is working. And so we work to serve him in the time and in the place that he has placed us. I read uh, years and years ago a brief biography of William Carey, the great missionary to India. Uh, born in the late 18th century, an English cobbler. He was poor. His missionary society thought him ill-equipped to do almost anything. They wouldn't ordain him for years. They didn't like the way that he discipled his congregation. They didn't think he was very smart. They hated the way that he preached. Hyper-Calvinist, they told him that if God wanted to save the people in India, he could very well do it without him. And he said, I'm going anyway. And so he goes. He arrives almost entirely impoverished. They fight dysentery and a host of other diseases for years. His wife and his sons, including a newborn infant boy, from the very first days of their ministry in India are on death's door from one illness after another. He preaches in one city and then another and then another. He stays up at night until near dawn teaching himself the language that the people speak, doing his very best with how God has equipped him to translate the New Testament especially into a language that the people could read. He baptizes his first convert after seven years. Seven years of preaching. Seven years of labor. Seven years of sickness. And one trial, one roadblock after another. And asked, what motivates you? And he said exactly what the saints of Hebrews 11 would have said. There was a work that was being done before me. There was a work that will be done after me. It's the work of Jesus Christ, and I am his servant for this time and this place. They were hopeful. They were obedient, assured that God was working, and finally, they were long-suffering, enduring the scorn of a world that belittled their faith in God. They were long-suffering. We find this repeatedly. Abel, who is one of the first people mentioned in this passage, is killed for the demonstration of his faith. Uh, of Moses, in verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." down in verse 35 after having recorded all of these extraordinary accomplishments of these people of faith we find too that some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment they were stoned they were sawn in two they were killed with the sword they went about in skins 
of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens in the caves of the earth. They understood what believers in evangelical America have struggled with for many years, that the calling to follow Jesus Christ in many ages, in many times, in many places has required an endurance that we find foreign. Jesus Christ suffered. Paul suffered. The disciples suffered. The saints of old suffered. And they considered all of their suffering worth it for the hope which is to come. We have tragically embraced even those of us who would outright reject the prosperity gospel that if only I do good things, God is required to give me good things. Many people, evangelicals in Bible-attending churches who read their Bibles and sing praises to God and live in fellowship with other mature believers still embrace a latent form of prosperity gospel because when something goes bad, the response is something like this. God, what did I do to deserve this? Haven't I served you? Haven't I preached your name? Haven't I taught my kids and my neighbors what it means to love you? Haven't I done enough? What are you doing for me? And the response from Hebrews 11 is very clear. I am setting you up for a life, the Lord says, of hardship and toil and persecution. And trust me, in light of eternity, it is light and fleeting and temporary. And when I come again, I will draw you to a place of safety and security close to me that will last forever. These saints of old who endured what they did, our author tells us, they were those of whom the world was not worthy but they were not superhuman. They were you. They were me. They were people whose faith was given to them by God and was placed in the work of God. Their faith was both from him and in him. Could we possibly have a faith like the faith that they had. Sure, take a look at the first couple of verses of Hebrews 12. Therefore, we get two reasons why we can endure this Hebrews 12. Two reasons why we can make it like them. That our faith can be long-suffering, that it can endure. One, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The great cloud of witnesses. They did it so you can do it too. Paul endured. John endured. Peter endured. William Carey endured. Your grandparents endured. So you can too. It's important that we tell that story that we humanize the heroes of the past to understand that if God could equip them with an enduring faith, he could also equip us with an enduring faith. 
I remember when I went to get my driver's license, I was absolutely terrified. I mean, just absolutely mortified. There's no way I'm going to be able to pass the exam. And I'm sitting in the little den in our house, and, and I must have been chewing my fingernails, and Pop said, uh, what are you thinking about over there? I said, I, you know, I got this driver's exam tomorrow. I'm very, very nervous about it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pass. And he said, look, let me give you this. Do you know you? And I started thinking about my friends who were a little older than me. And you know, some of them were really dumb. And I took courage. If they can do it, I can do it too. And I had to get a 75 to pass, and I got a 76. So I did it. I passed that test. I can't parallel park on the left side, but I got my driver's license, right? And you look through the history of the people who are listed here, and some of them are wonderfully righteous and some of them are miserable figures and God sustained all of them if he could get them through he can get you through do you understand it's important that we remember the stories and this is uh, an important reason why we maintain fellowship when we talk about what it means to mature as a follower of Jesus Christ we say the same three things over and over again you need to be in the word of God this is how God reveals himself in in scripture you need to uh, let it indwell you, right? You need to pray. This is the means by which we bring our pleas to God and meditate on the truths of Scripture and His presence. But also, you need to spend time with other believers. You need to hear their stories. You need to hear how God has preserved them, how God has taken care of them. In the midst of unimaginable calamities, how God has let them endure by faith. One of the very most wonderful things that you can do to develop the kind of faith that will persevere, spend time with others who God has brought through. But then he tells us this. This is uh, maybe my favorite verse in the entirety of this passage. With endurance, we run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The one who made your faith, who engineered it, its architect and its founder, its author, the one who knit it together inside of your head and inside of your heart, who manages every part of it, is Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again. By the power of his death, by the glory of his resurrection, he is the one who is sustaining your faith. Our faith is not a call to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Our faith is a call to believe in the promise of Jesus Christ who is working in you right now to bring you through to the very end to when he comes again. Our faith is not extraordinary for our contribution. Our faith is extraordinary for the God who made it and the God who sustains it every single day. He's the author of my faith. Will I endure? Sure I will. I'm extraordinarily confident to that end. Well, that sounds braggadocious. Oh, it is. Just not in me. In Jesus Christ, my Lord. If he says he'll do it, I know he will. Well, for all of this, I think we would say what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, we praise you for gifting us in our Lord Jesus Christ things unseen wrought by your invisible hands, things eternal that you have made which will last forever, things that you have made like our home in heaven and the faith in our hearts. They are your work 